everyone, and welcome. Uh, I'm glad that you're tuning in today. Uh, you know, as part of uh, being a member, you know, we wanted to be able to talk to experts out there in the field that are directly related to, you know, whatever you may be dealing with or struggling with in your own health. So I'm joined today by Dr. Peter Kahn. Dr. Kahn is a chiropractic physician. He's an expert in autoimmunity, brain, gut health, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about how all this ties into really autoimmune disease, because so many people that I work with, and I know you work with Dr. Khan, are struggling with autoimmune disease. So I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I, I know you have your own interesting story. You know, we all come to do what we do for various reasons. And I, I, I love your story. And for people who've never heard you speak before, can you just share a little bit about how you kind of came to do what you do? Yeah, thanks for letting me share. So, you know, um, I I had a undergrad degree in exercise physiology. And when I graduated with that, it's like, what do I do with that? Personal trainer. At the time, it was like a $15 an hour job. So I'm like, screw it. So I went to work in sales. And then a few years later, I just realized that I can do better for myself. And I went back into medicine, went to chiropractic school. At the time, I really didn't even know what that really is. You know, I thought, oh, I'm going to be a sports medicine doc. Um, but during that time, when I was in chiropractic school, my father was diagnosed with liver cancer, uh, stage four, actually. And, you know, at the time, he was already 75, 76 years old. So basically, the doctor said, hey, you know, we don't do liver transplant for people that old. It's stage four. So there's nothing we can do. So get your affairs in order. So my brother and I, my, my brother, who's also a chiropractor, we basically just took it into our own hands and say, Hey, we're going to help our dad the best we can. And with just a little bit of what we know, like I haven't even graduated yet. I just been kind of reading some, some, you know, uh, research and so forth. We put him on some really simple supplements. He made some diet change and lo and behold, he lived five years, wow. symptom free. And so that really taught me a lot, right? It taught me that, hey, you know, even though doctors say it's six months and there's nothing you can do, there's in fact a lot that you can do. And then fast forward, when I have kids, uh, one of my son, my older son, he had a scalding injury where hot water spilled down the side of his body. He had third degree burn over 15% his body. He had to be like medevaced and all that stuff. He was in Canada up in the cabins with his grandpa. So anyways, so we had this kid who's like, one and a half, two years old with severe burn injury. And he didn't really have much problems before, but since that burn injury, he's started developing very severe allergies to like pet denders, various foods. He started getting a lot of respiratory infections that he never had before. He will wake up with night terrors every night where we can't, couldn't console him. And he had like severe temper tantrums where, you know, I just remember like in a, in a parking lot of supermarket, you know, literally we're trying to buckle him into the seatbelt and he's just screaming bloody murder. Like people were looking at us like we're trying to abduct him or something. So he would just have, like, had these really severe, you know, uh, emotional outbursts. And, and at some point we thought he was going to become autistic. And uh, so that led me down the road into studying functional neurology. So I got my diploma or fellowship in um, studying child development disorder. And then along the road, got my diploma in neurology. And then I discovered functional medicine because in trying to help my son, I discovered, you know, gluten reaction and leaky gut and so forth. So starting studying that particular area and became certified in functional medicine. And I applied a lot of the things that I learned in helping my son and even my daughter, who my younger daughter who has severe peanut allergy. I apply what, what I learned with them to, you know, my patient population. And that really helped me to 
get much better result than what I was doing before, just doing kind of a one-sided approach, which is, hey, you just take some supplement or you just do chiropractic. But when I combine both, that's when I coined the term neurometabolic integration, meaning I'm addressing people neurologically, helping in their brain, but also metabolically, helping them with the metabolism and inflammation. When I combine that, the result just went through the roof. So that's what I'm doing now to kind of help people to appreciate how everything's interconnected. And there's a way to do it so that you can sequences and not lose your mind in the process because it can be a lot. And some people kind of get lost in the weeds. And uh, so getting you know the right information from people like yourself is really helpful. Yeah, it's amazing how our own personal experience really drives and motivates us to explore these other areas of medicine. You know, when you got this thing right in your face that, you know, especially if conventional medicine is not addressing it in maybe the way we think is the correct way. And of course, we know a lot of what happens in conventional medicine is really more geared towards symptom control versus getting at the root cause of illness. You know, one of the things I really appreciate about your work, Peter, is just this understanding, this really deep understanding between the brain, the gut, and the immune system, you know, that triad, because they all talk to each other. You know, can you just explain a little bit more about that connection and how they all really interrelate to one another? Yeah, and then this brain-immune-gut connection, I coined the term, you know, the big connection or the big idea, you know, acronym for brain-immune-gut really came from just me seeing a lot of patients, right? I've seen over 6,000 patients with chronic conditions. And through that process, I started to see that no matter if they come in with chronic Lyme, mold illness, Hashimoto's, chronic candida problem, what they all had was brain symptoms. They had immune system problems. They had gut issues. It's kind of like universal. So no matter what the diagnosis, those three areas are always affected in some degree. And they're, they're all affected, right? Very few people with chronic Lyme just have brain fog, but no inflammation or no gut problem. Very few people with mold illness just have brain symptoms and, and you know, no problem in other areas. So what I started seeing is that this pattern is that this brain immune gut axis is really what's connecting people's health. And when they break down, it's what's causing people's dysfunction and disease and leading to symptoms. So, and that led me down to, okay, well, how can we start to address this in a way that'll help this, this three-way triangle to start to function better, right? Because you can't just go in and say, well, all disease begin in the gut, so everybody just gut. Well, then you're gonna miss a lot of other parts too, right? Because all disease does not begin in the gut necessarily. Now, they may all involve the gut, that's why it's brain immune gut, it's all involved, but may not have started with the gut. For example, if somebody had a traumatic brain injury, they hit their head, concussion, and then that led to leaky gut. So in that case, it didn't start in the gut. That right. particular problem started in the head, but it involved the gut, right? So we have to be able to see all of it. And, and if we can do that, I think people will be able to be more empowered. They'll, they'll end up with more options at their disposal to help themselves. You know, I'm embarrassed to say that I recently learned, I mean, recent probably within the last year, maybe about two years, you know, this the, the relationship between the gut and the brain. We, we've all known about this for a long time. I mean, I learned that in naturopathic medical school. I'm sure you learned that in chiropractic school. But the the backward feedback of the vagus nerve from the gut to the brain, you know, I think about even like food reactions. Someone has a food sensitivity, it's not necessarily food allergy, but food sensitivity 
you know, if it stimulates the vagus nerve, there's a direct line back to the brain that then causes the brain to release all these chemicals, changes in neurotransmitters, changes in blood-brain barrier function. You know, I think we used to think that, well, you would eat the food, if you had leaky gut, it would cross the gut barrier, get absorbed in the bloodstream, circulates, then goes to the brain and causes whatever. And that may be part of the mechanism too, but there's also this direct line through the vagus nerve that you eat a food and instantly that vagus nerve is stimulating the brain. And now you're starting to get all these neurological symptoms that's that's something completely different and i i guess i wasn't aware of that up until fairly recently and it makes so much sense because for people who get symptoms often very quick after in this case of just eating a food or having some other kind of exposure you know it kind of makes sense yeah i mean vagus nerves definitely has been getting a lot of you know attention in recent years with a lot of summits and people talking about that and, you know, it's it's a very important nerve of the parasympathetic nervous system. In fact, it, it probably comprises about 80% of the parasympathetic function. Now, you have other nerves in your in your brain, in your body, that's, that's responsible for parasympathetic function. For example, in your lumbar and sacral plexus, you have the, you know, sacral parasympathetic plexus that innervate your bladder and, you know, your, your, your rectum area. And then in your in your face, you have other parasympathetic nerves that innervate, for example, your eyes and your your pupil and your tear duct to kind of control salivation and, and tear and stuff. But vagus nerve is the one that's getting the most attention, and, and rightly so, because it innervates the heart, the lung, all throughout the entire GI tract. And it's in, in more than just digestive and, and just autonomic. It also plays an important role in immune function. It also plays an important role in our mood and, and, and brain function, as you mentioned earlier. So I think because of that con control, this puts vagus nerve kind of in an intersection between the brain, the immune system, and the gut. So, so for example, one of the things that we've known in research for 20 years now, it's called the inflammatory reflex. This is a cholinergic uh cholinergic, meaning using acetylcholine as a neurotransmitter, and vagus nerve and much of the parasympathetic nervous system are cholinergic. And the vagus nerve uses this cholinergic pathway, in, in nerve pathway, to directly dampen inflammation in the liver, spleen, and intestine. And, and, and it's so direct that this is called a reflex. You know, in, in neurology, when we studied a monosynaptic reflex, the knee-jerk reflex, you know, when your doctor tapped the hammer on your knee, your patella tendon, you, you kind of, your leg kick, that is like an automatic thing. Whether you, that's why people think it's funny. Hey, I don't want to kick my leg, but you tap it, I kick anyways, because that reflex goes to the spinal cord and kicks it right back out to simulate contraction. So a reflex means something that's automatic. You right. stimulate, you get a response, it's not voluntary. This inflammatory reflex really should be called an anti-inflammatory reflex, but in the literature, they call it inflammatory reflex. It means it's an automatic response, meaning if you have good vagal motor outflow, if your vagus nerve is efferent pathway is firing down into your gut, you actually directly dampen macrophage activation in your spleen and your liver and intestine. Now you say like, what's the big deal with the spleen, liver, and intestine? Well, let's say intestine, 80% of your immune system is in your GI tract. So if you can dampen inflammation in the GI tract, that's 80% of your cytokine and inflammatory production potentially, right? Especially if you have gut dysbiosis. Right. Your spleen, another place that is a, you know, it's a, it's a lymphoid tissue, and it actually produces much of the macrophages 
that will you know travel throughout your body in an inflammatory situation. So to dampen inflammation in a spleen, liver, intestine, meaning it's dampening inflammation at the most critical area. And so if you so the, the, the converse then is that if you don't have good vagus nerve function, then those areas don't get stimulated or you don't dampen the inflammation in those areas as much. And therefore, systemic inflammation will be able to run wild and you're not able to, you know, put that out. Now, that this is a, I think there's a kind of evolved mechanism our body has to say that, hey, you know, we need to fight infections, right? We need to have inflammation because inflammation is how you kill bugs. Right. But if we don't put the fire out after the bug has been killed, then the fire can burn ourselves out, can kind of cause collateral damage. So I believe this inflammatory pathway through the vagus nerve is your body's way of controlling this inflammation. So it doesn't just run out of control. And so this is, this is so important that they actually have developed, you know, uh, vagus nerve stimulation devices that are actually going through FDA trial for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, various autoimmune disease where, you know, these uh, Humira and biologic medicines, Embro, they, they only work like half of the time for people. And that's great for the half of the people that it works for. But what about? Well, for the other half that the medication doesn't work, what do you do? Or sometimes people take these, you know, medications for autoimmune disease, you know, it works in, in the beginning, but then after a while it stops working for them because the root cause never addressed. So the problem just comes back. What do you do then when the drugs doesn't work, right? What, what, what's stronger than the drug? And then the question is the drug is the strongest as far as a chemical intervention, but the strongest drug still may not be necessarily treating the root cause of the condition. As you said earlier, it's a symptom treatment. And, you know, symptom treatment is a very profitable business because then you always got to come back to treat the symptom if you don't get rid of the cause of the problem. So, you know, the, the bottom line is vagus nerve is really important because they're developing therapeutics to do this vagus nerve stimulation using electrical, electrical stimulation rather than chemical to help right. the dampen inflammation in people with autoimmune disease. Yeah, on that topic, I mean, have you found other ways that people can help stimulate their own vagus nerve without necessarily using one of these medical devices? Yeah, and when I say medical device, by the way, what I mean is like an imp implant. So right. literally, they're opening a chest up, putting an electrical device there, and then, you know, there's a wire that wraps around the vagus nerve. I mean, it's yeah. an invasive technique. And, you know, you got to go to the doctor for follow up to like, you know, for them to like adjust the device. You know, it's, it's a pain about it's a very high cost as well. And then also it's not very convenient when you go through the airport or have MRI to have something in there, right? So other ways to stimulate the vagus nerve, they have um, been studying what's called transcutane transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation. So where it's done through the skin. So simply using electrodes, it could be a ear electrodes or some kind of stimulation in the neck area. And then that can stimulate the vagus nerve. Now, you are going through some layers of skin, right? So probably the effect is not as direct as if you have a wire wrapping around the vagus nerve through an implant. Right. But research has shown that transcutaneous vagus stimulation has you know, a lot of great benefits. They, they're showing in animal studies and human studies that it's being very effective. Now, there's other ways besides electrical, because some people just kind of freak out, you know, with electricity, they don't, they just don't like that idea, or some people get anxious about it, or it just doesn't work for some people. Then th there's other ways to stimulate the vagus nerve. And this could be different type of exercises. So know that the vagus nerve exit your brainstem and then innervate much of the structure in your throat on its way down. It's a paired nerve, one on the left, one on the right. And then so on its way down to your gut, it kind of passes your throat. So it controls a lot of your 
muscles of swallowing, the vocal core muscles. So you can actually stimulate the vagus nerve by activating those muscles that the nerve will innervate. So this will be gagging reflex, the gag reflex. Uh, this will be humming or gargling, right? All these involve using the throat muscles, which can stimulate the vagus nerve. Now, there's other ways besides those two. Those are just more directly like a vagal motor type of stimulation. There's also afferent vagal. So that would be sensory stimuli. And that could be, um, you know, splashing cold water on your face, right? right. In fact, uh, this is called the uh, the diving reflex. When your face is submerged underwater, the, the, the water and the fact that you're, uh, you know, kind of holding your breath a little bit as well. It's called a diving reflex, which is, again, another reflex that helps you to be able to stay underwater and not like just like feel like the urge to breathe right away. So that's why some people can stay underwater for quite a while. And that diving reflex is very much mediated by the vagus nerve as well. So now you don't have to like actually submerge and hold yourself underwater for like 10 minutes. Uh, just literally splashing water or just submerge yourself in a bowl of water for like 30 seconds can be very helpful. Um, so that's, that's another way to do it. And then, uh, meditation and deep breathing exercise yeah. can, uh, you know, increase your HRV, which is heart rate variability and heart rate variability is very much tied into the vagus nerve. And so by doing deep rhythmic breathing, where you prolong the inhale and the exhale, that also gets your heart rate to kind of get in that sinus rhythmic pattern, which is that heart rate variability, which also help with the relaxation response. Yeah, that, that's always my go-to for people. It's like, like, if you want something simple and free and easy, is just intentionally slow down your breath. That intentional slowing down automatically stimulates the vagus nerve. You know, breathe in for four to seven seconds, hold for four to seven seconds, breathe out for four to seven seconds, hold for four to seven seconds. You know, they call it box breathing. And that's just a really simple way to you know, spend you know, three to five minutes of just doing that. And particularly when you're stressed, it's amazing, you know, how quickly you can kind of get your body out of that, that stress feeling by engaging the vagus nerve. You know, there's a company out there called HeartMath that's done a ton of research. And basically, it's a little device that hooks up to your phone that basically trains you to control your breathing, slow everything down. And again, lots and lots of research that when people do this consistently, they can train their brain to get out of that stress state under a minute by just doing this intentional breathing. So again, simple, easy. I always like things that are free or at least close to it. Uh, you know, we don't have to get into, again, high-tech, you know, implantable vagus stimulators to get our nervous system to quiet down a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, I love HeartMath and, and HeartMath is, uh, it really helped up my meditation game. You know, it's like a biofeedback device, right? Because when you're using HeartMath, it's got a ears clip, that clip to your ear, which is just measuring your heart rate. And then yeah. that heart rate data is displayed on the phone and then gives you that heart rate variability data as you're doing the meditation. And it can give you audio cues and vibratory cues if you're not, you know, having high HRV. So then it just kind of give you a little nudge to, hey, slow down, you know, or, you know, it's called the heart coherence, which means that it's not just the breathing. They also want you to kind of focus on the heart. And it's a, so it's a sensation, right? It's not just the act of breathing. It's a sensation and the mindset, right? They want you to be in an attitude of gratitude or compassion, feeling the heart, breathing at the same time. And uh, as you say, there's tons of research on how that type of practice can really help to augment someone's relaxation response. 
I know so much of the work you do is in and around autoimmune disease. Can you tie in a little bit about this brain immune gut access? How does that really tie into different types of autoimmune diseases? Yeah. So, you know, when you have autoimmune disease, what that means is your immune system has lost tolerance. And, and to get a little bit more geeky, okay, what that means is that your body constantly have normal cellular turnover and it also constantly have some kind of bug right there's always some kind of bug you don't know there's bug just because it's because your if your immune system is working properly it's getting rid of the bug in the background so you don't even feel symptom in the first place because the way the bug causes problem a lot of times is that if the infection or pathogen is growing meaning they're making more babies right most viruses and bacteria they go through mitosis they they or fusion fission they divide right they make they kind of divide into two two into four four into eight and then so on and so forth so the, the more pathogen bacteria virus protozoa whatever candida then they're going to take up space they also take up energy right and then they all then, then a lot of time how they get their energy is by you know, eating the things around them, right? So that's why they cause tissue damage and inflammation because they're literally damaging your tissue by eating up your cells and getting energy from it. And so in that sense, having these pathogen is, is a inflammatory process and killing the pathogen is an inflammatory process. But, you know, there's this thing called a bistable neutrophil pathogen balance, right? So neutrophil means your white blood cells that kill pathogens. So this bistable neutrophil to pathogen balance means that at any given point, you have so much pathogen load in your body. And that's all okay, as long as your neutrophil or your white blood cells are like winning, like just above it, right? So let's say there's like 12 white blood cells and 10 bad guys. Well, the 10, the 12 white blood cells will be able to beat the 10 bad guy because you're gaining up on them a little bit, right? So you don't need to squash the bug down to zero because there's no sterile human being. Let's just say that. There's no such thing as a sterile human being. So your attempt to like disinfect and wipe everything and you know make your environment a germ-free environment, it's in vain because you can't do it all. There's always going to be some You're germs. literally 90% microbe. Right. You can't clean your environment to be completely germ-free. I mean, you could try, you know, unless you're in a hospital or in your lab, you can, like in a the lab, they can induce a sterile environment. Right. But like in the home that you live, it's not going to be sterile and neither is your body sterile. So don't even try it to go that go down that road. The, the reason why people get sick is because the, either the immune system can work, right? Or sometimes you do get an acute predatory pathogen or like TB, tuberculosis, right? That kind of bacteria is there, there to kill you, right? But then there's many other bugs that they're just there to live with you, like Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus. So the, the goal is not to squash these bugs to zero. The goal is just make your immune system stronger than the bug by just enough to keep the bugs under control. And then you're going to do fine. So how does it relate back to autoimmune? Well, if you have bugs that you can't control, then that process of bug damaging your tissue is going to create cellular debris. That cellular debris is going to get picked up by your immune system as well, right? Because your immune system is just picking up all these like chemical scents and protein and debris. And their job is to look at these protein and chemicals and see if it's a bad guy that need, they need to attack. And if they pick it up a lot, picking up a lot of cellular debris from your own body because of tissue damage, then there's just more probability that cellular debris is going to be presented to the TMB cells in your lymph node for them to potentially 
find a match for that self tissue ep epitope, which is like a sequence of protein, and that can drive autoimmunity, right? So it's all just a numbers game. Let's say at any given point, you know, 1% arbitrarily, just say 1% of your tissue can become autoimmune. Well, if you have 100 particles of your own self tissue being exposed to TMB cells versus a million of self tissue being exposed to TMB cells. Well, a million of 1% is gonna be a higher number than 1% than of 100, right? right? So if you have a lot of cellular debris and inflammation, that's gonna drive the higher probability you're gonna get autoimmune. Now, not just that side of it. Now, some people, their percentage is not 1%, their percentage is 3%, right. either because of genetics or because they have ramped up their immune system so much that your immune system's always on guard. So at any given point, instead of just 1% of the soldier out there looking for cellular debris, you got 5% of the soldier out there looking for cellular debris. So you got more cops on the street arresting people. And sometimes you just arrest the good guys too. And that can cause autoimmunity. So what it comes down to is really understand where all this come from and understand the different players involved, right? So what I just gave you is like a story or an example of kind of how the immune system work. But once we understand that there's different parts of the immune system all doing their job, then you can start to reverse engineer it and come to a solution for you. Because to say that, oh, you know, what's the protocol for autoimmune? There's no protocol, man. It's, it's like, what is going on with you specifically, which might be different than somebody else. So, you know, if everybody says, oh, autoimmune, you just need to dampen inflammation. Like, what the heck does that mean? And then sometimes maybe is it appropriate to dampen inflammation down to zero? Just kind of like what we said, we can't squash the bug down to zero. Neither should we be dampened the inflammation down to zero also, because inflammation is needed for the body to kill bugs and to clear up cellular injury. So sometimes like if you have an infection, if, you're, if your goal is trying to kill some infection that you can't clear, then you probably don't want to squash inflammation too much because then it's going to dampen your ability to kill, kill infection. So there's a time and place for everything. We don't have a free hand at just squash something or support something. It's more appropriate to say, what part are we trying to squash? What part are we trying to support so that we can achieve balance? And that might be different for different people. So this is where really learning more is going to help you, right? Some people just, uh, I don't want to learn. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me one pill. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's the no one pill, pill, right? Magic bullet, please. Yeah, just give me that drug that you I see on the commercial, right? But you know, if it was that easy, nobody would have problem. But you know, despite all these billion dollars of drugs and billion dollars of drug advertising, autoimmune disease still on the rise, right? So it's not like autoimmune's cured, just like cancer is not cured either. The reason it's not cured is because it's not a single bullet type of problem, and therefore it's not a single bullet type of solution. Well, I think if you look at all the biologic drugs on the market for any autoimmune disease, functionally, they all are trying to accomplish the same goal. And like I said, that's to sequester, squash inflammation. But that underlying cause, that underlying trigger has not necessarily been addressed. And like, yeah, you might get some temporary relief. And again, there are times, look, I am not saying that medication is bad. There are times where you need to intervene at that level. The inflammation Absolutely. is out of yeah. control, that if you don't get under control, there's so much tissue damage, it may get to the point where it's not reparable. But again, that's not the end game. You know, it's interesting, you know, I have MS and I got talked into by my neurologist to take a biologic, which was really didn't want to do at all. But I don't know, somehow she kind of scared me. And I got all of the side effects. I got none of the benefit. 
And, you know, that's the other thing about biologics that they don't really tell you is that they come with a very long list of side effects. And most people end up stopping their medication at some point because the side effect is worse than the disease. So how do we, we as autoimmune patients, you know, start taking stock of our own health and start really digging deep into what are all those underlying things that you know potentially trigger the inflammatory process? I remember having a conversation with a colleague of mine who's a functional neurologist. We were talking about, in my case, you know, MS. How do you repair myelin? And she kind of laughed. She says, "Well, you have to stop the inflammation first. She's like, "What's the point of trying to rebuild myelin when you've got something constantly tearing down? That'd be like trying to be, you know build a new building while it's on fire. It just it doesn't make any sense, and you don't get very far." So until we figure out what it is for each person that's perpetuating the inflammatory cycle, our efforts to rebuild connective tissue, to do all the other things we want to have better function, won't be nearly as effective until the inflammation's under better control. So I, I think what you're saying is just so critically important to understand that for everybody, it's something a little different. Yeah. And uh, you made a perfect example, you know, uh, in a case of MS, how do you build myelin? Well, you, st you stop the damage from continuing to occur because if you keep tearing down the tissue, then you, you're not going to be able to build it back up, right? It's kind of like you have a skin wound and before the skin heals over, you just keep scratching it and it bleeds again. Before the skin heals over, you're scratching it and you're never going to have enough time and a chance to heal. So you have to stop the tissue damage so that the body can heal itself. Because how do you heal the myelin? The myelin will heal itself if your immune system will quit chewing at it, right? So, so, but if it's constantly chewing at it, then of course it's not going to heal because you're constantly scratching that wound. So how do we stop it? That? And that, that's really why or how I came up with the neurometabolic integration, meaning, you know, as chiropractic neurologists, you know, you could rehab a person all, all day long, but if they don't have sufficient fuel to the neuron, or they don't, ha they have too much inflammation doing damage to the tissue, then you can rehab, rehab all day, you're not gonna get anywhere. Now, on the other hand, some people, they have the opposite issue, right? They're taking boatloads of supplement, but then the brain function is not there. Right. Because they had a concussion, for example, they hit their head, like, you know, the, the example that we given. So then if you don't rehab those injured neurons and activate them, then you're always going to have a deficit there. It's kind of like your right bicep is injured, but you never went and rehabbed it. So now your right bicep is always weaker. So now right. when you go lift a really heavy load, it's going to just tilt, tilt over. That's the, that's the symptom. The symptoms when you lift something heavy, you drop it because there's a weakness, right? But you also, you got to fix the weakness, but you also got to feed the muscle too, right? That's nutrition, that's amino acids, proteins, and so forth. So, you know, when we start to step back a little bit, it's all pretty simple. It doesn't mean it's easy, it, it, you know, but we can simplify the complex. The body's really complex, right? I mean, to, we, we can't dumb it down so much where it loses meaning, but we can simply, we can simplify more for people so they can know where the starting point for them is. Well, I, I think to your point, you know, chronic illness is complicated. Autoimmune illness is complicated. Again, I think there's so much in immunology that we're just really beginning to understand. You know, we don't really understand why the immune system loses tolerance to anything in our world. You know, why are some people allergic to cats and other people aren't? Why do some people, you know, get any autoimmune disease and other people don't? I, I think what's always fascinating, and I talk about this uh, all the time, 
when you look at other cultures, particularly outside of Western culture, where parasites and other bugs are endemic, their rate of autoimmune disease is almost zero. You know, there's some pretty compelling evidence that having exposure to beneficial parasites to some of these other bugs, you know, we, we've become such, like you said, a a sterile obsessed society. We sterilize our food. We irradiate our food. We're so afraid of getting infection that the things we get used to get exposed to just through dirt, primarily through our food and sometimes our water, was probably actually very protective in our gut and helped us learn about what's in our environment to tolerate it better. And as we've kind of sterilized, 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 you know, we've lost a lot of that immune tolerance. You know, we don't have the same level of microbes that we used to have in our food and our water supply. And, you know, again, we're still learning more, but I suspect that that's a big part of why, you know, we see this big shift in people's guts and ultimately why we see the development of autoimmune disease. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're referring to what's called a hygiene theory in uh, in the literature, right? And then when they study, you know, uh, groups of people, people who are in an industrialized, urbanized area who are highly sanitized, tend to have more issues, uh, you know, autoimmune and, and allergies and things like that. Where people in places where they they're more exposed to the environment tend to have less of those issues. Now, those people do have infections, but just like in any point, right? Infections. There are certain bugs that are just predatory, like they they intend on taking over and just kill the host. But a lot of other bugs are kind of just commensal, right? They're there, and then if your immune system's down, then they take over. They're more opportunistic. So I think I suspect in you know third world countries where they have a lot more exposure, where parasites are endemic, most of them are probably having parasites, but their body can handle it, right? Kind of like what we talked about earlier, your immune system just gotta be like, have the upper hand slightly to keep everything under control. So they may have parasites, but it doesn't bother them, doesn't create symptoms. And then sometimes it does because that person, either the parasite just too much or uh, too, you know multiplying too much or too many of them, or the immune system's not working, and then the parasite wins and then the person started having more symptoms. But definitely, you know, uh, I think the, you know, the, the, the the environment, you know, you talk about dirt, Dr. Ingalls. I think dirt is just another nutrient. It's another signal, right, in our environment. Just like being touched and having socialization is a form of nutrient and environmental stimuli to help us to grow and, and be, be healthy. The, the dirt in our environment is just another environmental cue to let us know that, hey, we are here. This is where we are. And this is the, the, our environment. And this is why in Chinese, uh, in Chinese saying, they say that when you move to a new area or you travel to a new area, a lot of time you get diarrhea, your, your stomach doesn't feel good. They call it feng shui bu fu. That means like you're not in harmony with the wind and the water in the area because it's a new environment. It's not the same bug anymore. So your body doesn't know how to adjust. So I think that our environment is so important. But of course, you know, living in suburbs where, where I am and industrialized places, it's there's just a paucity of dirt you know there's not enough that mud that we play with so i don't know maybe we just go play with mud yeah you know i i would think about when i was the kid i mean of course i'm a boy you know and my brother and i were always like building forts and digging holes in the ground and we would come home just covered in dirt and we drank out of the hose in the front yard that god knows what that hose was exposed to and you know, we had a lot of exposure to our environment that was part of our childhood. I can remember we had a creek nearby and we used to go play in the creek and throw mud. And uh, I'm sure to some degree that exposure, because inevitably you're going to touch it, you're going to put it in your mouth, you're going to 
get it, you know, in and around your body, but you know, your immune system learns so much that way about again, what's part of your world. And I think we saw this during the pandemic where people were going through hand sanitizer like it was nothing. And like I said, it was it was completely fruitless because you okay, you sterilize your hands for 10 seconds. The minute you touch something else, you've now recontaminated your hands with whatever's on your purse, your bag, your groceries, whatever you're touching. And it's such a short lived thing. So yeah, I, I think to some degree we need to go back to you know getting more in touch with their environment, letting kids play with dirt. I tell my parents they have you know young kids, toddlers, like when the binky falls out of their mouth, you don't need to go sterilize it, boil it, <laughs> just get all the big dirt off, stick it back in their mouth. Three second rule. <laughs> exactly, it's like I promise you, you are never going to harm a child from doing that. It does not cause disease. That's not the way it works. Uh, but again, it is a way that, you know, uh, I think our immune system learns. I think there's a reason that, you know, kids, you know, in, in many ways, you know, when they start interacting with each other, you know, they slobber on each other, they touch each other. And again, I think that's a good thing because it's, it's a way that they're learning about other people's microbiome, other things that's in a world slightly different sh shifts in microbiome that ultimately teaches our immune system what's supposed to be there. Well, you know, the people always say, oh, you know, my kids bring all the bugs from school home. But, you know, the fact that your kids get sick from the bugs from school means that your his his or her immune system is learning about the bug from school and right. is developing antibody. So it's kind of like it's preparing the, their immune system for the future. So, you know, uh, you know, the immune system is meant to be used, right? It's meant to generate symptoms as a way to kill off things. But once you kill off things, you develop immunity to that particular bug. And that's right. how your immune system goes to school, so to speak. So if you want your immune system to uh, get a PhD education, then, you know, <laughs> don't be afraid of getting sick from time to time. Now, if you, you know, once you get past like, you know, childhood years, you know, if you're an adult and you're still constantly getting sick, then that's not normal because by then your immune system, you know, once you get out of high school, you, you should be, your immune system should have matured to kind of, you know, know like, okay, this is kind of what I'm dealing with in the environment. So if you're still sick, then that indicates some kind of weakness in the immune system. Yeah. Well, I know you have so much to share in your masterclass and I really want to encourage people tuning in to check it out. I mean, it is one of the most comprehensive uh, masterclasses I've ever seen that really dives deep into all the different things, like you said, brain health, gut health, immune health, with a lot of very practical things, like here are things you can do along the way. And again, we know there's no one size fits all approach, but just understanding all these foundational things that you can do at home. I think it's always great to have a practitioner walk through this with you to give you extra guidance, but uh, you've given people such a great tool resource to access all this great information. So we'll we'll definitely connect the, the link to the masterclass. And uh, I just really encourage everybody to check it out. So uh, again, I, I'm always grateful to talk with you, Peter. You're just such a, again, just a great source of knowledge and uh, we always have great conversations. So I'm just grateful to have you here. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right, thank you. <laughs>